We're doing a, a series through these last chapters of Matthew and this morning, Matthew 26. And I'm going to read from verse 47, Matthew 26 and verse 47. Let's hear the word of the Holy Spirit as he speaks to us. Uh, it is the, uh, the night before Jesus goes to the cross. He's prayed in the Garden of Gethsemane. He's been betrayed by Judas. And as we pick up the story, he's in chains and, as we'll see, about to be taken uh, to the high priest to be put on trial. So verse 47. Oh, sorry, not 47, 57. There you go. 57. Then those who'd seized Jesus led him to Caiaphas, the high priest, where the scribes and the elders had gathered. And Peter was following him at a distance, as far as the courtyard of the high priest. And going inside, he sat with the guards to see the end. Now, the chief priests and the whole council were seeking false testimony against Jesus so that they might put him to death. But they found none, though many false witnesses came forward. And at last, two came forward and said, this man said, I'm able to destroy the temple of God and to rebuild it in three days. And the high priest stood up and said, have you no answer to make? What is it that these men testify against you? But Jesus remained silent. And the high priest said to him, I adjure you by the living God. Tell us if you are the Christ, the son of God. Jesus said to him, you have said so. But I tell you, from now on, you will see the son of man seated at the right hand of power and coming on the clouds of heaven. Then the high priest tore his robes and said, he has uttered blasphemy. What further witnesses do we need? You've now heard his blasphemy. What is your judgment? They answered, he deserves death. Then they spit in his face and struck him. And some slapped him saying, prophesy to us, you Christ, who is it that struck you? I wonder if you've read these stories before, the, the stories that tell of what happened to Jesus between his betrayal by Judas and going to the cross. As you read the different gospels, uh, each one focuses on slightly different aspects of the process uh, as Jesus is sentenced to death. I suspect if you have done, at times they, they can feel, I feel a little bit like treading water. We, we, we know the significance of the cross. Perhaps we've, we've enjoyed, if that's the right word, listening to Jesus preaching throughout the Gospel of Matthew and see the, the miracles. And then there's this kind of strange phase where Jesus is brought from one trial to another. And we're not too sure what to make of it. And so very simply this morning, I, I want to look at what, what happened to Jesus, to think about what it means, and then think why it matters. So just three simple questions for us this morning. What happened to Jesus? What does it mean? And then why does it matter for us? Uh, let's start just with the basic. What, what happened? What is going on here? Jesus has been captured, betrayed by Judas, and bound. You might remember Jesus began his ministry by saying he is the one who's come to set the captives free. Later on, his disciples will write letters about how the Son of God came to set free his people. Here's the great liberator, the great setter free, 
and he's bound in chains. And he's taken to Caiaphas. Caiaphas is the high priest. You might know uh, that the way um, Israel was set up as a nation uh, was with a, a whole group of people put in charge of the worship of God's people. They were known as the priests. And one man, one man at any one point was the high priest. He was a descendant of Aaron, Moses's brother. And at this moment in time, it is Caiaphas. He is, as it were, I can put it a bit like this, a bit like the Pope in the Roman Catholic Church or the Archbishop of Canterbury um, in the Anglican Church. He is the, the top dog. But he's not alone. Uh, you see there in verse 57, with him are the scribes and the elders. This is the council that rules over the Jewish people, sometimes called the Sanhedrin uh, or in Greek, the Presbytery. We're a Presbyterian church, you might know. Um, Presbyterian is a Greek word. It just means the council of the elders. It's not something invented in the New Testament, although it certainly continues in the New Testament. Timothy, we read later, is ordained. He becomes a minister when the, the Presbyterian, the council, lay hands on him. But here is the council as it stands in the days of Jesus. It's the highest court of the church. Now, to talk about a call of the church might sound very strange. We're, not, we're used to thinking of church perhaps as a family, or we think of uh, a church as a body. You might know those passages that speak about the body of Christ, Christ the head, we're the body. We think of church perhaps as a temple. We're living stones being built together. So to speak of a court of the church sounds incongruous, sounds strange. But it's always been one of the functions, particularly of the leaders of God's people, when necessary, to, to exercise discipline in the church. Uh, that is, uh, to act as a court. About a year or, or, or so ago, um, uh, the denomination we're part of had a, a trial. Okay, and the elders, the ministers of the, the different churches, we were gathered together in London. There was a particular allegation against, um, I won't go into details, but against one uh, minister, uh, one missionary. This is kind of public. I'm not betraying anything uh, secret here. And so we had to sit and hear evidence for and against and then vote. Is this, is this guy guilty or not guilty? Um, that is not a human imposition. That is one of the duties uh, of ministers in God's church. So, for example, if I was to stand here on a Sunday morning and start preaching to you that Jesus isn't really God, at least not God like God the Father is God, then it would be the duty of the elders to remove me from office. If I was to start sinning in a significant way that may be unworthy to be an elder, all the same with Peter or Matt or other elders, then it would be the duty of the church to remove me from office. It's not a pleasant part of the duties, but it is a significant part of the duties. And that is what's going on here. The Sanhedrin, the Presbytery, the Council of Rulers is meeting because this man is being brought, Jesus. This man is being brought to them on charges. Now, the significant difference, if you look at verse 59, is this court is corrupt. So they have every right to exist it's not wrong of them to meet as a court, but just look how verse 59 uh, describes their work. The chief priests and the whole council, that's the presbytery of the Sanhedrin, were seeking false testimony against Jesus so that they might put him to death. 
This isn't a fair investigation of the wrongs and rights. They're not genuinely assessing and weighing the evidence. They know the verdict they want to reach, guilty. And they know the sentence they want to pass, death. But they're not a lynch mob, so they know they need to have this kind of veneer, this impression of legality. One of the rules God set up uh, right at the beginning of his people, and again, it continues to this day. It's quoted both in Deuteronomy at the beginning of the Bible and 1 Timothy towards the end, is that you have to have two witnesses at least in order to convict somebody. Two witnesses at least. And the problem for the high priest and his council is they can't find any. None of the witnesses will agree. Verse 60, they found none, although all sorts of false witnesses come forward. They get nowhere. Until eventually the false witnesses uh, in verse 60 uh, come together, two together. Just let me pause at this stage. Do you see what the council are doing? Not rationally investigating the evidence, but rather finding an excuse to act as they already want to act. That instinct in the heart of humanity is one that has not died away. One that remains in us to this day to greater or lesser extent. Uh, If you're not someone who'd call yourself a Christian, uh, if you're looking into the Christian faith, then I'm so pleased you're here today. You're you're incredibly welcome. I'm so glad you're here. It's great that you're here. I'm looking in to the gospel, this good news uh, that Christians want to proclaim to the world. But let me ask you, are you, in all honesty, are you honestly looking for answers? A number of years ago, a good number of years ago now, I was a student, so a fair few years ago, decades ago. Um, I remember being involved in a mission week, an events week, I think they get called nowadays. Uh, and I remember the, the guy who was leading it, the speaker, talking with this, this one lad in a, in a different hall of residence. And all week he'd been meeting with him and the guy had been asking questions. You know, what about science? How can you believe in science if you're a Christian? And the, the speaker tried to answer that. And well, what about suffering? If there's a God, why would he allow suffering? And so they talked about that. Can you trust the Bible? Is it really reliable? Was it made up decades later? And so they talked about that on and on and on. By the Friday of the week, uh, this, this guy was coming with more questions. And the speaker stopped and said, let, let me interrupt you. Let me ask you a question. Let's say I could answer to your complete satisfaction every question you ask. Would you then become a Christian? And in a sense, to his credit, the guy said, no. But that was betraying what was going on in his heart. He didn't want to know the truth. His problems, as it were, weren't intellectual, but moral. He didn't want a God intervening in his life. He didn't want the consequences, at least as he saw them, of having Christ as Lord. A lot of that comes down to the fact that we fear God. We suspect he's, he's against us and to come to him is going to be pain and misery and a squashing of the life out of us. We're not these neutral observers. Even as Christians, many of you in the room will be Christians. We, we, we still, we, we pretend at times we don't fully understand what God is saying. So we're real Christians. We've believed and trusted him. He's our saviour. He's our Lord. But then he, he comes to us in his word and uh, puts his finger on something that we don't particularly like. And one of the tactics we use is confusion. 
or at least pretend confusion. Um, there's a, a writer called Kierkegaard. <clears throat> He's far too clever for me to read, but um, every now and again I come across something he said, uh, which is pretty insightful. He said this, the Bible is very easy to understand, but we Christians are a bunch of scheming swindlers. We pretend to be unable to understand it because we know very well the minute we understand, we're obliged to act accordingly. I think that's a great insight. There are bits in the Bible that we don't want to understand. And the reason we don't want to understand them is we don't want to obey them. Deep down, we know they're true. It's just there's something in this that kicks in and says it's not good. Just as the serpent slithered up to Eve in the garden and said, no, no, no. God's not out for your good. The council here, they, they know the truth. Jesus has been doing extraordinary miracles. Has that ever crossed your mind? You know, how is it at the end of three years of walking on water, feeding 5,000, raising the dead, healing lepers, giving sight to the blind, turning water into wine? How is it that they're asking, so who are you? They know, they know, but they don't want him. They want to be left on their own, to live as they want to live. So the false witnesses eventually um, cohere, two of them in in verse 60, two come forward and put this allegation that, that Jesus said that he would destroy the temple and rebuild it in three days. Now, that, that, that is something that Jesus kind of said, uh, not in Matthew's gospel, but if you read John's gospel, Jesus did make a comment that, that sounds very much like that. John explained straight away that he wasn't talking about the building, but rather about his body. The temple is the place where God dwells on earth. And all through the days of Israel, through the Old Testament, God had dwelt in a physical building in Jerusalem, the temple. But now God's son had come to earth. And so he is the the true temple. And so when Jesus said, destroy the temple and I will raise it again in three days, he was talking about his death. Kill me and I'll be back in three days. But of course, the high priest doesn't want to understand that. And so he accuses Jesus, verse 62, have you no answer to make? And fascinatingly, Jesus stays quiet. We'll return to that, his silence Okay, the, the silence of the lamb is it's hugely significant in understanding what's going on here. So just mark it and we'll come back to it. So with Jesus not replying, that the high priest comes back and puts him on oath. I adjure you, verse 63. In other words, swear by the living God. Are you the Christ, the son of God? Tell us, says the high priest, whether you are this figure that we've all been waiting for, that our scriptures point to. Fascinatingly, he, he gives two titles, the Christ, which is the Messiah, means the anointed one, but also the Son of God. Now, if, if you're a Christian, you're, you're likely to read that phrase, Son of God, and think very naturally that the high priest is saying to Jesus, are you, are you God? Okay, are you the second person of the Trinity? That's almost certainly not what the high priest is is asking, is thinking. Now, now Jesus is God. (laughs) He is the second verse of the Trinity. But actually, that phrase, son of God, comes up lots of times in the Old Testament, many, many times. 
And usually, usually it's referring to the kings of Israel. Not always, but usually it's referring to the kings of Israel. Son of God is a, a title given to David, the great king, and then his children, his children, his children, uh, on from there. And so the high priest knows his Old Testament. He knows that the Old Testament promised that one day, one of David's children, an heir to this title, son of God, one of them would come and rescue and reign and rule over Israel again. At the moment, there is no king. That's why the council is in charge. There's no king. But he knew the promises. And he knew too, it seems, that that king wouldn't just be a king, but would be a rescuer, a messiah, a Christ. He's quite right about the prophecies. And he says to Jesus, is, is, is that you? Now, you might think, well, that's, that's a strange thing to ask. Oh, we start with some evidence that says Jesus said he's going to destroy the temple and raise it again in three days. And then the high priest says, are you the Christ? What, what's the link between the, the two? I think, I think the point is this, that, that the stuff about the temple, that, that in and of itself is not enough to get someone killed. Okay, maybe Jesus is just some weirdo who, who's sort of making strange claims about being able to knock down a building and then build it up again in three days. It's, it's nuts, it's mad, but it's not enough to kill someone. But the high priest has done his Old Testament theology class. And he knows that in, in one of the prophets, a prophet called Zechariah, that the prophet Zechariah predicted that when the Messiah came, he would build, rebuild a temple. We're not going to turn to it now. But it's there in Zechariah 6, if you want to read that chapter later in the day. And so when he hears that Jesus has said he's going to build a temple, he thinks, ah, so that might be him claiming to be our great king, our great Messiah. This is my chance to get him. And so he asked Jesus that question. Are you the king? Are you the Messiah? And Jesus, well, he doesn't say yes or no exactly, does he? Verse 64, you have said so. He's not denying it. Of course, he's not denying it because he is. But he doesn't want to let the high priest define the trial and the charges. And so he massively inflates the charges against him. It's as if he says, yes, but it's not just that. It, actually, verse 64, I am the son of man. And you'll see me soon. Seated at the right hand of power, as in the right hand of God. And coming on the clouds of heaven. Now, this, this is really significant. We, we are going to look this up because it'll help us understand what's going on uh, when we try and uh, interpret, as it were, the trial in a moment. Uh, come with me to the book of Daniel. Uh, we haven't got the church Bibles this week, so I can't give you a reference, but it's towards the end of the Old Testament. Daniel chapter 7. Children, if you open your Bibles in the middle-ish and it's kind of Psalms, then Isaiah, Jeremiah, Ezekiel, keep going forwards and just soon after those you should find Daniel. Daniel chapter 7. Any of the strange sounding prophet, prophets, you've probably gone too far. Daniel chapter 7. And verse 13. Actually, no, let me, let me read from verse 9. 
Daniel 7, verse 9. Daniel, this Old Testament prophet, is being given a, a vision into heaven. He says, I looked, thrones were placed, and the Ancient of Days took his seat. Notice thrones, plural. The Ancient of Days, that's God, sits on one throne. He's burningly pure, fiery flames. And what is the scene? Verse 10. The court sat in judgment. Here's another court and the books of judgment are open. So the court is being set up. God is on the throne. But then look how it goes on. Verse 13. I saw in the night visions and behold, with the clouds of heaven, recognize the language, there came one like a son of man. And he came to the ancient of days, was presented before him and to him was given dominion and glory and a kingdom that all peoples, nations and languages should serve, same word as worship, him. Very strange passage. Very strange passage. There's God on the throne, a courtroom scene. So far, so good. This is going to be judgment day. But then someone comes on the clouds to him, rides on the clouds. Children, it's like surfing on the clouds almost. Someone who's like a son of man. In other words, someone who's a man comes to God and actually it's this one who's like a man who is worshipped and served. In other words, this cloud rider has the same authority and is worshipped just like God. Jesus is saying to Caiaphas, that is me. Yes, Messiah. Yes, Son of God, Son of David. But that's not the half of it. I'm the one whom all nations across the earth will worship. I'm the one who on judgment day in the final court will sit on a throne equal to God the Father. And the high priest gets it. Back in Matthew. He tears his robes. He's uttered blasphemy, he cries out. What further witnesses do we need? He's put himself on a level with God. Now we've got him. By his own mouth, we've got him. Here, this carpenter, this lowlife from Galilee, claiming he's going to rule the world and is equal with God. What shall we do with him, he cries to his cronies. And they say back, kill him. He deserves death. And they spit on him and strike him, cover him in saliva and beat him. What are we to do with that on a Sunday morning? What does it mean? Let me put it simply to start with. What are we being told? We're being told that God is in the dock so that you might never be. That's what this scene is telling you. God is in the dock so that you might never be. Or if you like, the judge is judged so that you might never be. The judge is being judged, so you might never be. Here is the Son of Man, God himself, who's taken on flesh, the one who's meant to rule in this ultimate multinational all-authority court, who instead of sitting in the judge's seat is being judged by Caiaphas. He is innocent, isn't he? 
They're false witnesses who rise against him. There is nothing Jesus has done that deserves death. It's one of the incredible things in the Gospels when you read uh, through them that, that no one is able to, to hold anything against him. He is pure all the way through. There is not one stain on him. Not one sin of thought, word or deed. Jordan, I wonder if you've seen the, the Harry Potter movies or read the books. Remember in one of them, there's a thing, I think it's called the pensive. And it, you can pull thoughts out. Dumbledore, the magician, can pull thoughts out. The wizard, sorry. And uh, you know, all the thoughts, they're like wiggly worms. Imagine every thought of your head could be pulled out. Every thought of Jesus' mind for his entire life is pure. Pull thoughts out of my head, you'd get ugly, mouldy ones, black ones, full of grimy thoughts that I ought never to have thought. Jesus is pure all the way through, not just in what he does, but what he thinks, what he feels. There is no guilt in him. When you've had that experience of uh, driving along and you, you hear the police car in the background, the sirens. What, what, what do you think? When you hear the, the police car coming up behind you, what, what do you think? Is, is it just me? Or, 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 or do you just start feeling guilty? Okay. Like, even if you totally know you're not speeding, okay, you're not, you're not doing anything wrong, still the guilt kicks in. I remember once getting a phone call uh, when I was down in Derby. And I you know, picked up my mobile and, um, you know, hello, you know, who is it? Unrecognised number. And it was, I can't remember his name, but it was Sergeant so-and-so so -and -so from, from the Derby Police. And instantly I'm thinking, oh my life, what have I done? You know, well, well, I kind of know at some level I haven't broken any, you know, there was no, I hadn't robbed a bank or anything. No, but, but guilt kicks in. Why? Because deep down I am guilty. I mean, I don't think I'm guilty of breaking British law, but, but I know I'm guilty. Our conscience kicks in, doesn't it? We know we're guilty. But not for Jesus. He knew he was pure to the core. He's innocent, but he's willingly found guilty. He is silent before the accusers. This charge stays with him. He is declared guilty. That's the verdict. And he's given the death sentence. And this, this, is, this is where the importance kicks in. It matters how Jesus dies. I wonder if you've thought about that before. Perhaps you know that Jesus came to, to die for the sins of his people, came to atone, came to die in our place. Does it matter how he dies, though? W would it have worked, if I can put it really crudely, if Jesus had been assassinated by a Caiaphas hit squad? Would it have worked if he'd been lynched by an angry crowd? Would it have worked if he'd died in a boating accident on Lake Galilee? He'd be sinless, wouldn't he? But that's not enough. He needs to be sentenced, to be condemned. The, the, the courts show us that Jesus is willingly accepting a guilty verdict. And this court in particular is the highest court on earth, set up by God himself. Behind Caiaphas, strangely, is the Lord God. Our forefathers, some of the Christians who went before us, I think thought about this a lot more than, than perhaps we have done. Uh, one of the questions in a, a document called the Heidelberg Catechism, which was a series of questions and answers ch children would learn to um, understand the basics of the Christian faith. The question is this. Why did Christ suffer under Pontius Pilate as judge? You could ask the same thing as, as Caiaphas. 
There's, there's going to be a second trial under Pontius Pilate. The question basically is, why, why is he judged by a human court? I wonder if you ever thought about that. I'm not sure I had. The answer comes like this. So that Jesus, though innocent, might be condemned by an earthly judge and so free us from the severe judgment of God that was to fall on us. This is a legal death, in other words. This is the moment Jesus says, yes, I will take that sentence upon me. It is willing. That is why he's silent. Perhaps if you know the Old Testament a little bit, you might hear there Isaiah 53. That great prophecy of the crucifixion. Let me read just a few verses. He was pierced for our transgressions. He was crushed for our iniquities. And upon him was the chastisement that brought us peace. With his wounds we are healed. All we like sheep have gone astray. We've turned every one to his own way. And the Lord has laid on him the iniquity of us all. That is the bit I think we know best. But hear how it goes on. And remember that the silence of Jesus in the courtroom. The prophecy goes on. He was oppressed and he was afflicted, yet he opened not his mouth. Like a lamb that is led to the slaughter and a sheep that is uh, before its shearers is silent. So he opened not his mouth. There's Jesus keeping quiet. The lamb silent before his slaughterers. By oppression and judgment, he was taken away. He was cut off out of the land of the living, stricken, hit in other words, for the transgressions, says God, of my people. It was the will of the Lord to crush him. This is the legal giving to Jesus of the guilt that he does not deserve, but willingly accepts, willingly accepts in yours and my place. It's an extraordinary scene. The very one who has the right to condemn everybody, instead saying, yes, condemn me. Or remaining silent whilst he's condemned. The high priest, or the priests in general, every year at Passover, this time of year, would gather to inspect the Passover lambs and choose which ones were suitable to be sacrificed. Here is the court of the priests for the last time sacrificing the true Passover lamb. The last high priest sends the last Passover lamb, the true Passover lamb, to his death. Here are the gardens of the temple who are about to do the very thing they've been mocking Jesus for. They're about to destroy the temple, the true temple, Jesus, and enable him to be raised up in three days time. Here is the high priest thinking he is working for the glory of God by killing Jesus. And there is Jesus, truly working for the glory of God, accepting death in order that you and I might be spared. So what are we to do with this as we end? You have to put yourself in the courtroom and praise God for it. Did you see the good news in the trial? You and I need to say to God, I deserve to be where Jesus is. It is good news that this trial happened. And although in one sense it was a terrible wickedness, it is also the best news I could hear. We need to say to him, 
you were merciful and right to condemn sin. Right to condemn it, although that sin is mine. Merciful in that you took it on yourself instead of me. In the modern world, we don't do well with guilt, do we? There are really just two ways humanity have dealt with guilt uh, over the centuries, more or less. That the modern way, and it, this is the way of many Eastern religions too, is just to deny it. Deny it. Our, our modern religion, we've summarised a few times on Sundays, is tells us to, to, to be yourself, to free yourself, don't let anyone tell you what to do, and to express yourself, particularly sexually. There is no such thing as guilt. Guilt implies there's a standard that you've fallen below. Guilt implies someone has the right to tell you that's right and that's wrong. And the modern world says, no, if it comes from within, you do it. Be yourself. Follow your heart. The modern world, in other words, denies guilt. Religions, other religions, many of them major in guilt. Sunday by Sunday or Friday by Friday or Saturday by Saturday, you'll be told what you've done wrong and what you need to do to try and balance it out. And religions come like, like, like granny's old weighing scales where you, you hope you've done more good things than bad and hope the good will outweigh the bad when it comes to judgment day. But you are very conscious of guilt. And neither system works. We know we haven't done enough deep down. And whatever counsellor or psychologist or pop star or, 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 or lifestyle guru tells us just to be ourselves and not let anyone judge us, deep down we know we are guilty. Suppressing it doesn't work. And that's why the gospel is such good news. The gospel is totally different. In the gospel, God says to you, you don't need to hide your guilt or deny it. In fact, you're commanded not to. You're commanded to admit you are guilty. Admit you deserve to be in the dock where Jesus was. And if you do deny it, you're making a mockery of the whole court and the whole cross. Why would Jesus need to be in the court if you're such a good person? As a Christian, there is no need to deny your guilt. The guilt is there for all of us. But it's safe to admit it. Because I see that it has been paid for. It's been laid on the silent lamb instead of me. So I can admit the worst things about myself to God, knowing that it's safe. It has been paid for. I can let the word pierce me, convict me to the deepest level, because it can no longer condemn me. Jesus has been condemned, so I never will be. God made him who knew no sin to be sin in order that in him we might become the righteousness of God. Some of you, some of you really struggle when you're told you're wrong. Told by God's word you're wrong. You don't want to know it. It scares you. It panics you. I'm not a good Christian. I'm not a good disciple. Maybe this means I'm not a Christian at all. You're telling me I ought to be praying more or you're telling me I ought to be uh, putting that sin to death. Or, and I don't want to hear it because it, it makes me so scared. I'm, I, but you can admit it. There's no need to hide it. It has been paid for in Christ. The way to life and health is to confess it. If I don't see that God has gone to the dock for me, then I'm either going to deny my sin or I can deflect it, blame someone else. 
I'll make excuses. I'll speak. Jesus was silent, but I'll speak. Well, the husband you gave me, no wonder I do it. The job you put me in, the environment, my friends, my housemates, no wonder I sin, God. I will be constantly speaking, denying, deflecting, downplaying, defending. But when I hear Christ's silence, when I hear that he said, yes, treat me, treat me like Phil, like Sarah, like Emma. Treat me as if I'd done all that they've done. I don't need to defend myself. My guilt has been paid. It should make you a less defensive person. Uh, Spurgeon, who was a Victorian preacher, was once talking to, I think, some students about what, what to do if someone slanders them, sort of says things about them that, that isn't true. He said this, if any man thinks ill of you, thinks badly of you, don't be angry with him. For you're worse than he thinks you are. <laughs> okay, maybe someone's saying something about it. it's not true. It might not be, but man, there's a lot else they could be talking about. It doesn't matter. And when I say it doesn't matter, I don't mean, hey, sin doesn't matter, do what you want. Of course, it, you're guilty. That's all right. You're also not condemned. And if you want to see proof of how kind God is, just see it in verse 67. That is an extraordinary verse, isn't it? Then they spat in his face. That is God. You have a God who is willing to have the very people he came to save spit in his face. They don't ever spat on you. Saliva running down his beard. Slapped. God slapped. God spat at. Because he wanted to rescue you. Next time you feel the need to vindicate yourself, prove yourself, whether to others or to yourself, I'm a good Christian really, or to God, just remember the silence of the Lamb. If you've come to him to take shelter, you are safe. As the saliva runs down Jesus' face, as he's humiliated, he does it out of love for you so that you might never be, never be condemned for the worst that you've done. He has paid it all. It's all covered by the silence of the Lamb. Let me pray. Our Father in heaven, uh, these are incredible things to think about. And we pray that you would bury them deep in our hearts. Keep them at the forefront of our minds. Lord Jesus, to think that you, the mighty Son of God, became flesh and was spat at, kept quiet when you were, your, your reputation was trashed when you were slandered, willing to be found guilty, though you were innocent as snow and all for love for your people. Help us stand in that verdict, we pray, and to trust in you alone to rescue. Give us grateful hearts, we ask. We ask in your name. Amen.